0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Climate scientists live every day with the grim realities of a warming planet. And when they see governments in action, some get so frustrated they become activists, a role they may have never envisioned for themselves.
1: If there's a call to take a non-violent route to stand up and speak out about this, then I am all for that. We can't wait any longer.
0: But as we'll hear, scientists don't see eye-to-eye on this. Then, a young woman named Amelia has kept an audio diary for us, an intimate look at the life of a teen today under intense academic pressure.
2: This is not who I am. I am not this overly stressed person who can't function normally. I am not this scared, anxious, sad person.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Virtually everything we hold dear—water, food, our health, our money—is jeopardized by climate change. That is the consensus of federal scientists in the National Climate Assessment, which came out during the Thanksgiving holiday. But is it enough for scientists to sound alarm bells, to write papers, testify, attend conferences? Or is there room for them to become activists— Think of the group Extinction Rebellion.
3: Writing
1: letters, going on short demonstrations, nothing ever gets done. So we're now upping it
3: by sitting down, stopping traffic. And I think the awareness is getting raised, but we need to do more and more.
0: A video from the group's Facebook page. At Buckingham Palace in London, for instance, the group glued themselves to the gates. Peaceful, not lawful. There is disagreement in the scientific community over researchers doing and supporting stuff like that. We're going to dive into these differences with Twyla Moon of the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder. Twyla, welcome to the program.
4: Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And Maria Caffrey, who was a partner with the National Park Service. Hi, Maria.
1: Hi, Ryan. Great to be here.
0: We'll dive into your differences in just a bit. Uh, But I do want to give folks a better sense of of who you each are. Maria, you were on the show just a couple of months ago after you filed a whistleblower complaint against the Trump administration, uh, alleging that you lost your job with the Park Service because you refused to eliminate mentions of human-caused climate change in your research. How are you doing? How are things for you?
1: Uh, I'm doing okay. I still haven't found permanent employment, but I'm working part-time for the Union of Concerned Scientists. They've been a tremendous support throughout all of this.
0: This is a group that has its eye on climate change for sure and sounding warnings about it.
1: Yes, certainly. I mean, this isn't really the career trajectory I ever imagined I would be on, but... I found a lot of support in the scientific community for what I've been saying and what I'm promoting.
0: But it's been hard, I imagine, to get any other government work at this point?
1: Oh, it's impossible to get government work. I've pretty much ruled that out. I think by being a whistleblower, there's a certain kind of scarlet letter (laughs) that comes with my name now. And so for a lot of positions, I think I've been ruled out for them.
0: Twilight, you're with the National Snow and Ice Data Center, as I said. Uh, just briefly, what are you trying to learn about climate change right now?
4: I focus on understanding the large ice on Earth, the Greenland ice sheet, Antarctica, and understanding the size of change, the speed of it, and how it's influencing us.
0: What is the, the speed, the size of change?
4: Well, we've seen rapid increase in ice loss all around the globe, and that's been producing measurable sea level rise. Over the last 25 years, we've seen sea levels around the globe uh, rise by more than three inches. But in some locations, that number is more than double because of local conditions.
0: So up to half a foot.
4: Yes. Measurably. Or more.
0: You can imagine if you have coastal property, that's a real issue.
4: Oh, absolutely. And um, when we think about what is likely to come, there's still a wide range that's dependent on human action, but significant sea level rise will be expected even under the rosiest of scenarios.
0: Okay. We brought you both here to talk about the line between climate science, which you both practice, and climate activism. Maria, you did sign in support of the group Extinction Rebellion. The declaration says the scientific community has already tried all conventional methods to draw attention to the crisis. We believe that continued governmental inaction over the climate and ecological crisis now justifies peaceful and nonviolent protest and direct action, even if this goes beyond the bounds of the current law. Why did you sign this?
1: Ryan, I've been in climate change for a long time. I've done a lot of research over many, many years, and... I've also worked with the government and been on the front line of seeing how they interpret that science and what actions they want to take with that. And quite frankly, I'm frustrated. We've been telling the government about climate change for decades, and they have done nothing about it. Um, so if there's a call for people to take a non-violent route to stand up and speak out about this, then... I am all for that. We need more action. We can't wait any longer.
0: What kind of action are you willing to take? Would you glue yourself to the gates of Buckingham Palace?
1: (laughs) No, I don't think I would. I'm English.
0: (laughs) Too much respect for the Queen.
1: (laughs) Maybe. I would go quite that far. But, you know, sitting outside of Wall Street in a nonviolent way just to raise awareness of the issue of climate change, I think is a very important thing. I think that people like Jane Fonda, who have made a point of protesting every Friday to raise awareness of the issue of climate change, is great. And She's doing that in a nonviolent way, but she keeps getting arrested because she doesn't have a permit. And so I think it's great that we keep the issue of climate change in the public's mind,
0: Jane Fonda is not also someone producing research and whose papers I might be reading.
1: I don't think the general public are reading my papers either, to be perfectly honest. Most of these academic papers are behind a paywall. And so who's going to pay 30 maybe $60 to look at some academic paper?
0: I guess I mean, is your research, to the extent that you're able to do it, Is it taken less seriously if someone connects that with you sitting in front of Wall Street?
1: I would hope not. However, if I were in an academic institution, my dean wouldn't be very happy, but... I guess a silver lining of my situation is that I'm unemployed, so I don't have a dean or an organization that I have to worry about.
0: Interesting. So this could be situational.
1: Another reason that I signed the Extinction Rebellion um, list was because I'm frustrated that there's a new line being put out there by climate change deniers which is that it's too late to do anything about climate change so that even if it's happening, it doesn't matter it's already in progress. And that really frustrates me because we could be taking actions right now and we're not. And so that's you, you why want to I counter signed,
0: that narrative to some extent
1: Definitely it's not too late. we can definitely take action.
0: Twyla, you chose not to sign in support of Extinction Rebellion. Help us understand your thinking.
1: I have chosen not to sign
4: the Extinction Rebellion statement because of that call to potentially unlawful action. I have signed other scientist statements that declare a state of emergency or a climate crisis, and it does require prompt and substantial action. That is a level we haven't seen before. But for me, the bound of condoning potentially unlawful activities, I feel like is something that I could support perhaps as myself, as a citizen, but not that I want to support as a scientist uh, with my professional hat on.
0: Do you think you'd face blowback from a dean, for instance?
4: I think there would certainly be some discussions uh, across the university about how I was representing them.
0: Do you have any concerns about signing a letter? Like the one Maria signed, and the perception of your work, of your lack of bias. Is that any part of the thinking for you?
4: I guess my decision not to sign it was not really a concern about how people would view my science and the results that I write about. Okay. Are you as frustrated
0: as Maria? Mm-hmm.
4: Certainly, it sounds like it. I find it extremely frustrating, just as Maria was saying, that scientists have been raising a red flag in the best ways we know for decades, and we haven't been seeing action. And I certainly ask myself the question of, what am I going to do in an emergency, and how am I going to react?
0: Anything you want to know from each other or respond to there, One
1: thing I would also, just to start a conversation here, is... The New York Times published an op-ed where they said scientists basically haven't been doing a good enough job of speaking out about climate change. And it's that kind of language that is so frustrating to me because we have been talking and talking and talking about it. My one concern is that when we talk about it, we don't talk about it in enough public forums. We talk about it amongst ourselves. As you said, we publish papers, but those papers get... Shared amongst other colleagues. We're not talking to the public as much as perhaps we should. But then on the flip side, we're getting paid to do research. We're getting paid to do teaching. We're not getting paid. And that takes up some time. That takes up 60, 70 hours a week. We're not getting paid to do outreach to the public. It would be really wonderful if our universities could start issuing contracts that would include a public component. But I know plenty of colleagues who are discouraged from having public Twitter accounts, from speaking out in even just the m- more sensible public ways, because it's seen as either detracting from your duties or perhaps maybe you could bring some kind of controversy upon the university.
0: And so you're signing the Extinction Rebellion letter. It sounds like, Maria, was a way to be public facing.
1: Yeah, I think we all need to be more public facing. Whether or not people have support from their universities is a different matter, and it would be really nice if the universities could support the scientists in being more public about this.
4: I agree with Maria that we are in a point where we are not appropriately recognizing the importance and rewarding the activity of bringing science outside the scientific sphere, whether that be to the public or decision makers. It's not something that's rewarded in our system. And I think there's increasing recognition that science communication needs to happen and an increasing call for it to happen, but a real lack in um, helping people do it. And I can tell you, I speak to a lot of different audiences I bring them the science because right now the science, the physical changes happening in our Earth system are alarming. There's no need to make up a story beyond today's science to bring a real shock.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting two perspectives today on where science meets Activism and to what extent it should. Maria Caffrey of Denver is a whistleblower who says her research for the National Park Service was watered down. She has since signed a declaration in support of the group Extinction Rebellion that this is now a crisis and justifies nonviolent protest and direct action, even if it's illegal. Now, that's a declaration Twyla Moon declined to put her name on. She's with the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder. Do you think, Maria, that signing this Extinction Rebellion letter, do you think that it does anything? Or is it preaching to the choir?
1: You know, I feel really conflicted about this. I signed it because, as I said, I was fed up, but I'm not sure what difference this makes. I get requests to sign letters almost weekly from various organizations. And so these letters come out periodically, but Does that change anything? I don't know, but it takes minimal time for me to submit to that. So, of course, I'll, I'll sign something if I agree to it. I think the place where it matters most is if you get enough signatures that it can be taken to a lawmaker.
4: I agree with Maria about bringing this message and demands to decision makers, but I actually do think that there is a value in these appearing in front of the general public because I do think that there's a substantial portion of Americans paying attention or they're maybe mildly concerned. And I'm really interested in taking the attention of those people who just have this at the periphery and bringing it more centrally into their vision and having those people begin to talk to their neighbors and their friends and their representatives. The
0: Trump administration has proposed a new EPA rule that would require scientists to disclose all of their raw data before the agency considers their findings. Now, that presents a problem because many studies that link things like air and water pollution to human health, for instance, rely on confidential medical records So some see this as another effort to weaken the role of science in policymaking. The administration says this is about transparency. How do you think the political climate is playing a role in scientists crossing into activism? Maria, seems uh, like quite an appropriate question for you as a whistleblower.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to preface this, I never thought that I would be pulled into a political arena at all. When I was writing my sea level rise and storm surge report for the National Park Service, I was purely focused on the science. And yet, out of the blue, a reporter filed a Freedom of Information Act request for my report. And so that's how I got pulled into this. She saw that I was fighting internally with my superiors about trying to keep certain key scientific terms in my report. And so that became public.
0: Do you feel, um, for lack of a better term, like forced into this, that circumstance forced you into this?
1: Definitely. Um, This was something that I never imagined for my career. But now that I'm here, I certainly feel a responsibility to speak out in ways that I know other researchers might have their hands tied a little more.
4: I think that the politicization of climate science and, frankly, many other areas of science does make me as a scientist feel bullied and pushed around. And I've written proposals in which I've avoided using the phrase climate change from the beginning, which feels certainly like something that I shouldn't be asked to consider. What do you say instead? Changes in temperature, increasing temperature. Changes in water temperature, um, coastal hazards, coastal hazards, risks. Yeah, and it feels really inappropriate to have to consider that when discussing science or scientific results. And I think that. Feeling this pressure to fit into a political understanding of science certainly, I think, has driven more scientists to paying attention to the political process and considering how it is that they maybe need to speak up about their science. Um, People are maybe not understanding that we are individuals with passions and values and morals and ethics, and I often consider my purpose to be saving the world. And um, you know, I I think that's a pretty good value to base your work off of.
1: (laughs) Well, and if I could add to that, Twyla, from my own experience, I can certainly understand why some scientists wouldn't choose to be more public about their research, because I get a lot of online harassment. I've been called an entitled millennial. And I've had comments made about my looks as a woman in science. You get a lot of those. Um, Just Catherine Hayhoe, a very prominent climate scientist who's on Twitter, just in the last few days has been keeping tabs of the number of people she's had to block. I've had letters sent to my home. And so I can understand why some scientists choose not to be more public, because sometimes it feels like you're putting not only yourself, but your family at risk by doing that.
0: Uh, Maria, your Twitter bio says that you're now fighting for stronger scientific integrity protections. What does that look like to you?
1: Yeah, stronger scientific integrity protections means that things like what Twyla just described a few moments ago about having to change your language depending on the administration shouldn't happen. We call that self-censorship. All you should be focused on is your science and you shouldn't have to worry about when you're writing a report whether or not the terms you're using are going to be ones that are going to be well received. I would like scientists to be able to just focus on the science and not worry about losing their jobs or um, becoming pariahs within the scientific community if they choose to speak out about what's happening with their research because of political influence.
0: Would those be then new federal laws, do you think?
1: Yes, Yes, definitely, as well as calling out people with conflicts of interest that are currently putting pressure on scientists to change their work.
0: Twilight, you are nodding yes. Why don't you leave us with just a few thoughts there?
4: I agree. And I think that increase in scientific integrity addresses the sorts of regulations you brought up with the EPA now demanding raw data that in sometimes is confidential information. We see that even in our work in the Arctic where you're working with indigenous knowledge holders there. I think we're right now feeling that science is caught in a difficult place between politics and bringing the scientific truth forward for people to be able to act on that. And scientists are doing our best to muddle through and continue to raise the alarm.
0: Just before we go, Twyla, is Maria wrong? Maria, is Twyla wrong for the view that you each hold about science and activism? Or do you make a place for each other's choices?
4: This is Twyla. I certainly make a place for this. I think this is a very individual decision in where this gray space is between what you condone and what you don't. But I think that we can agree Mm -hmm. science is telling us a really important message.
0: Maria, Is, is Twyla wrong?
1: No, absolutely not. And I can completely understand her perspective. If I was in her position, I might be doing the exact same things.
0: Thanks to both of you for being with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Maria Caffrey and Twyla Moon are climate scientists in Colorado. They spoke with us about the line between science and activism. Finding common ground at holiday get-togethers can be a challenge, especially with family. A Denver rabbi recently started Clean Speech Colorado, which teaches people how to avoid words that harm and divide. He hopes it can help the holidays from ending on a sour note. Here's CPR's Joella Bauman.
3: Rabbi Raphael Liebham was growing increasingly concerned about the way he'd heard people speaking to each other.
5: Fifty years ago, people could differ vehemently and be quite good friends. A couple decades later, it became, if I differ with you, not just you have another opinion, but you're wrong. And today, if I differ with you, you're bad. It's tearing us apart. How many stories of broken families of one have to hear before you have to do something and respond?
3: Liban is the managing director of the Jewish Experience, an organization that uses different platforms to bring the Jewish community together.
5: The term lashon Hara is what the Clean Speech Colorado campaign is focusing on. Translated, it would mean an evil tongue. And it means to speak in a way about someone else that's hurtful or harmful.
3: Liban says in Jewish culture, practicing Lashan Hara means using mindfulness to curb negative thoughts and perceptions that could manifest into hurtful speech towards others. The month-long campaign in November included in-person events and delivered daily lessons.
5: Based on understanding how important speech is, what we're trying to avoid in terms of cleansing our speech, how one should be a careful speaker but the careful listener too. Lastly, how one should speak up because there are times when things do sometimes need to be said, we can make the holidays more peaceful, more loving, be respectful, be able to interact with one another, even to talk about challenging issues about which we might differ.
3: Ban suggests explicitly enlisting everyone at a holiday gathering to have positive conversations, even try a reward system for maintaining civility in spite of tremendously passionate opinions. I'm Joella Bauman, CPR News.
0: And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a teen diary, one the teen opened up for us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.
6: Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwill, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything
0: we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org. And thank you. Academic stress is so intense in some schools. Teens buckle under the pressure. A Denver teen who attends a high-performance charter school recorded audio diaries for us, letting us into her world. She feels alone in her struggle to understand what's happening. CPR education reporter Jenny Brendine introduces us to Amelia.
2: I didn't get a very good night's sleep. Um,
6: August fifteenth, 2019, the first day of Amelia's senior year. I was really
2: anxious. It might be about school or it might be about something else,
6: but... 17-year-old Amelia had been nervous about returning for her senior year since late July. She started remembering in junior year how she often got to school late.
2: Because I couldn't drag myself out of bed. My room was and still is my safe space.
6: In Audio Diaries, Amelia explains how in her junior year, she began overthinking everything, consumed with how people reacted to her. Terrified, she'd have what she and a friend call their spiral moments.
2: When any event happens that makes us feel sad or upset or brushes up against us the wrong way, we start thinking more and more and more and more and more about it. And we just are on a downward spiral until I start crying.
6: Those moments tend to happen in school.
2: Because I am terrified of keeping quiet to myself so nobody else can make me feel sad. It is because I am terrified of all the tests and it is because I am terrified of all the social anxiety that I get when I
6: walk- Amelia wasn't always this way. Through sophomore year, she got Bs and Cs and was happy with that. People were her fuel. She liked to joke around. Seinfeld is a favorite. She liked to debate. She has an RBG bumper sticker. But starting in her junior year of high school, That Amelia started fading away. She started keeping to herself. So the mere thought of returning to her senior year at a high-pressure school.
2: It really feels like you're going out to sea on like a sheet of wood. That is how it feels walking into a school with no mental health supports and really no friends. But yet you are still expected... To take a test every single week, it's called... A four-
6: Amelia transferred her sophomore year to a Denver charter school where academics are intense. In many of her audio diaries, she often mentions how she adores learning.
2: I was excited for a world where you wanted to learn, and you kept trying, and that idea is healthy. But that's not what actually went on. Everybody talks about their grades nonstop. There's this like competition, and it breeds, I need to be first.
6: First in getting into Ivy League schools, first in extracurriculars and academics. Those expectations... A
2: 1600, above a 4.0, and all AP classes.
6: ...are ones many kids at a lot of schools embrace. And then the pressure starts coming from themselves. In junior year, Amelia said, I'm going to try to play that game.
2: And I knew it wasn't healthy, but it felt like the only option because it was all around me.
6: And it broke her. She gets down on herself. She talks about measuring up to friends who come from, quote, two-parent families and take vacations in the mountains. That's not her. Senior year, Amelia tells herself she needs to bring up her GPA.
2: I have to submit all A's first trimester senior year. I have to.
6: 3.9 is the average GPA to get into her dream school, a notion that's peddled to many stressed-out kids. Never mind, it's $70,000 a year. But those schools make up many of the college banners Amelia sees all along the hallways of her school. It's like
2: Columbia. It's Tufts. It's Howard. You always have to strive for that, and you're always reminded, "Oh, I have to strive for that." that was my second day
6: of Amelia got through that first day of senior year. But today's another day.
2: I am finally allowed to have my phone at lunch. She's
6: she's talking talking quietly into a phone, a new lunchtime privilege at school, in a little nook off by the elevator. She feels suffocated at school, students aren't allowed off campus at lunch, and Amelia doesn't always feel comfortable in the lunchroom. On this second day of her senior year, she's already stressed, already filling out forms for letters of recommendation for college, already worrying about AP tests. There's not a minute to relax. And then something happens.
2: One of my favorite teachers just came up and he high-fived me and that really made me happy.
6: That little moment of human interaction in her solitary nook brings tears to her it's eyes.
2: like coming out of nowhere. Like I'm like, my eyes are like water. Um, okay.
6: Amelia keeps it together, but all her emotions come out in a recording sitting in her car at the end of the day. Because she's withdrawn so much, she feels her old friends are pulling away.
2: Because I don't make jokes the same way, or really jokes at all, because I hide behind my hair, and I feel like they don't like who I am anymore. And really, I don't either, because this is not who I am. I am not this overly stressed person who can't function normally. I am not this scared, anxious, sad person. That's not who I am. I don't know how to get better. I don't know how to change. I don't know how to be myself again. (sighs) Then I'm thinking about all of the stuff that I'm saying right now in the middle of heavy literature and we're supposed to be understanding what Ebola means. I don't even understand what the meaning of life is.
6: Amelia's been shocked to find her school has a mental health specialist only one day a week. There's a social worker, often busy. She says your friends are your mental health safety net, if you have them. She feels trapped. It's too late to switch to another school.
2: So uh, you might have trouble hearing me because I am at like a little stream right now. This morning, I went to my senior sunrise.
6: That's a trip to watch the sunrise. She wasn't going to go, but she's glad she went. She connected with a friend who goes to school in Golden.
2: And it was really refreshing, one, to get out of the city. And two, it was really refreshing being at a school.
6: She was surprised. Students not in uniforms, walking to the park for lunch. She didn't see any college banners on the wall. Instead, she saw a student-made painting. I was
2: like, oh my gosh. That is amazing. That is truly beautiful that they have that up on their wall. I
6: noticed on this tape, Amelia's voice is different, more energetic. She has taken her Adderall for the ADD, she says. The doctors have told her she has. She's less prone to spirals. It makes her more focused. At
2: lunch, I'm like, homework, 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 homework. It
6: makes her a little scared because she doesn't want to be dependent on Adderall to feel just barely okay. Not like the funny, exuberant, self-deprecating Amelia of years past.
2: I really like sophomore year Amelia. She, she was a gym. I miss her. I want her back.
6: Amelia decided to fight back, to get back to old Amelia. She's fighting to change the system she says is hurting her and her peers. She continued to record audio diaries that tell the story of that fight. It's been hard for Amelia to drag herself out of bed for school. Though she adores learning, the stress of having to score high on tests at her rigorous Denver charter school is too much. But she lights up on this topic.
2: In my sadness, in my very awful, like, state of life, I can still get up and out of bed in the morning to go to a training about how to be a community organizer.
6: Amelia's in her car, recording an audio diary.
2: I am in my flow when I am educating people about inequities and then pushing them to create change. I am in my flow when I am at a school board meeting. Perpetuate stigma around admitting you need help. And I am up on that podium, and I am saying, hey man, this is what's happening. This is not okay. Let's fix it. So we are left with stressed, anxious students, unable to focus on their studies, with no resources.
6: Amelia testified before the Denver Public School Board. One of her classmates testified he'd attempted suicide 11 times. Her advocacy is part of her volunteer work at an organization asking the district to require, specifically, a mental health counselor at every school. Amelia's school has a psychologist only one day a week, and the social worker is often busy. Amelia says it's a matter of priorities. Principal,
2: principal, dean, prep academy dean, senior academy dean. We laid out and made room in the budget for that. So why don't we make room for mental health?
6: Amelia's still anxious the minute she walks into school. She thinks she only absorbs about 60% of her classroom work. She's often in a fight-or-flight mode. Once it got so bad, her hands started cramping, her knees shook, her heart raced. She had to leave class.
2: I am probably, well, like an hour out of the city, and I'm sitting kind of out in this field, and I can see the skyscrapers out in the distance.
6: Amelia often drives a half an hour or more outside the city, just so she can finally relax, sometimes by a river, next to some trees. Or here in a field
2: nowhere like in my day can I really just be peaceful can I just sit and be like quote-unquote a normal teenager
6: she's alone recording this audio diary for this story
2: oh there's butterfly
6: it's here where she tells the story of two incidents at school that changed her that were the catalyst for her speaking out. In her junior year, Amelia was hyper-focused on her academics, working tirelessly towards her goal, which was also the school's goal. High academic scores and 100% of students accepted into college. But she saw that a lot of kids around her weren't happy.
2: That's when I realized, when my classmates said, kill myself, I don't want to be here, they freaking meant it.
6: Yes, her school has some great teachers. Yes, she says the quality of education can be fabulous. Yes, some students can handle sky-high stress. But for others, it comes at a price, especially when they feel there's no one to talk to at school or home, like this friend of Amelia's.
2: And I remember exactly where we were when I was like, can't you talk to your mom about it? She was like, no. It's like, grandma. She was like, no. I was like, so who are you going to talk to? And I remember her saying, I don't have anybody to talk to. I was like, that is not okay.
6: One time, she tried to help another friend at school.
2: <sighs> this story gets me every time.
6: She remembers getting a hall pass to take a break for a minute from class and she, came upon a friend of hers.
2: She was talking to my other friend. She was crying. She lifts up her sleeve right where her elbow is, right on her arteries. There's just these deep, deep, deeper than anything I've ever seen before. These cuts. And they weren't just normal cuts. I was like, I can't cry right now because that would make her feel worse. And I gave her a hug. And then one of our science teachers was like, where are you supposed to be? And I just look at her like have any idea what is going on? And she says, where's your pass? I said, right here. She assumed that we were just out of class to have fun. We all had passes. So we were all good on the safety side. But she took away the one space that my friend had to talk to somebody. And I'll never forget that.
6: The reason she says those two experiences are so vivid and important to her is because she says she took the time to take off the blindfold.
2: Is because I was not hyper-focused on my academics. But I say this because when you are hyper-focused on 100% college acceptance, when you are hyper-focused on, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing you kind of just like only look at that one thing and everything else to the sides there could be a fire on your right there could be a tornado on your left but you are focused on that 100% college acceptance and nothing will get in the way of that even if it means students are dying even if it means students are self-harming Even if it means students come to school stressed, anxious, depressed, mad, angry, upset, in the fight-or-flight mode, you will not get to see any of that because you are only focused on that one thing.
6: And here is her message to everyone who interacts with teenagers.
2: Take the blindfold off and realize what is happening to the students in your district, to the students in your school's, to the students in your classrooms. Realize what is behind that fake smile. Realize what is behind their poor attendance. Realize what is behind their poor grades. Realize what is behind their bad behavior. Realize what is behind them never being in class. Realize what it is before it is too late.
6: I'm Jenny Brundine, Colorado Public Radio News.
0: Amelia is a student at a charter school in Denver. She recorded audio diaries as part of CPR's series Teens Under Stress. Tell us your memories of school stress. Text the words Tell CPR to 555-888. Again, Tell CPR to 555-888, and you can read other stories in this project at cpr.org teens. When we come back, an icon in the ski industry celebrates his 100th birthday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org.
0: A legend in the ski industry just marked a milestone. On Monday, Klaus Obermeier celebrated his 100th birthday. He is the founder of the Aspen skiwear company Sport Obermeier. In 2007, he told me about the first piece of ski clothing he
7: made, a parka, from stuff he had around the house. I cut up my down comforter, but I had... Feathers in my cereal for three weeks after that. <laughs> feathers <laughs> flying all over the place. But it worked. It looked like Michelin, man. It didn't look look very elegant. But it was warm and you could ski in it, you know. And I put a zipper on it from an old parker I had. I took that off and put it on the new down parker. When and where was this? That was in 1948 in Aspen, and what, what were
0: most people wearing when they went skiing in the 40s in Aspen?
7: Well, they usually had just a kind of a cheap dress shirt and a cheap sweater and maybe a shell, you know, like an anorak, a Norwegian anorak that was not lined. that was, just, was made of um, cotton and nylon mixture. That was it. So that wasn't very warm. No, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like skiing would have been a a pretty bitter experience. Yeah, a bitter cold.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which would make you bitter, I guess. Well, so I wonder... <laughs> it could. How, how do you get the idea that, well, more people should have this? I mean,
7: were, were people expressing interest in it as you whizzed by? <laughs> well, the, the thing was, the, I I had a student in my class and he said, oh, Klaus, can I try that jacket once? I said, Sure. So he tried it and he liked it so much, you know, kept him warm, going up the 15-minute lift ride on the world's longest single chairlift in Aspen. And uh, he said, I'll I'll buy it from you for $350. I give you $350. I said, wow, that's a lot of money because you could buy a new Buick at that time for (laughs) $1,250 with radio. So, so that gave me the courage. Then the next summer to go back to Munich, uh, I had a friend there that had a bedding factory, and I asked him to make me down parkers. He said, "Oh hell no, I I'm not making parkers. I make pillows and comforters." And so we went down to the Hofbräuhaus and we had a few beer, and that softened him up enough. He said, "Okay, I'll make you these parkers, but you gotta get me the little." Uh, knitted wristbands and you got to find the zippers for it, which I didn't, so he made me 75 of them, and they were a lot better than the one I had made from the comforter, that's for sure. They look nice. So he made them, I brought them back here and they sold like, uh, what they say, hot rolls in the morning, you know.
0: Yeah, sold like hot cakes
7: <laughs> or cold cakes. Yeah. I oh guess. yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> cold hot cakes. <laughs>
0: so you eventually started production in Aspen. In other words, th- oh, yes. this was, yeah. So how did that happen?
7: In Aspen, I had 17 seamstresses making parkas. And we made, first we made a, a kind of a Bavarian quilt parka And that sold very well. We sold them by the dozen, assorted to the shops, you know. I can't help but wonder why this market hadn't come
0: along by then. In other words, there were all those people freezing their tushes off on the slopes. And when you started making this, was was there competition to be had
7: immediately or what? You know, at that time, like 47, 48, 49, 50... Skiing was a very, very small sport in the United States. It was too small for an industry to develop, to make clothing that would work for it. Give me another example of an innovation that uh, Obermeyer
0: brought to the market.
7: We did all kinds of things. We did the first mirror glasses, the first Sondheim that worked at this elevation, uh, people used to just burn up in f- uh, end of February, March, April. Uh, they came here for a two-week vacation. They left after two days burned up from the sunshine. And the reason why we did it was to keep the people here. You know, to, So when they came for 14-day vacation, they really spent 14 days here and didn't leave after two, three days. The, the money part, and that was kind of totally secondary. The primary thing was to keep people happy that came to Aspen that were willing to learn to ski or skied already some. And so they kept coming back and brought their friends and, and we got some business. You're an aeronautical engineer by training. Uh, yes. You moved here from
0: Germany, uh, yes. quickly became uh,
7: enamored with, with skiing in this country. And how do you wind up in Aspen? Well, I knew Friedel Pfeiffer, who was running the ski school in Aspen. I knew him from racing, from St. Anton in Austria. He was in Sun Valley at first, you know. This is and in, Idaho, in Idaho. the ski school in Sun Valley, Idaho. Yeah. So I wrote him when I was in New York, and he said, well, yeah, come on out. So I went to Sun Valley, and I said, where do I find Friedel Pfeiffer? They said, well, in Aspen. I said, thank you. I went from the Challenger Inn into the Aspen Chalet, said I like to talk to Friedel Pfeiffer. <laughs> he said, Oh, he's in Aspen. I said, Well isn't this the Aspen Chalet? He said, No, no, it's a new ski resort they're doing in Colorado. It's eight hundred miles from here. <laughs> <So that laughs> so, but it is because of Friedel that I came to Aspen.
0: In those very early days of the resort, you were a ski instructor.
7: I understand you had some pretty notable ski students at that point. Oh, yeah, Uh, movie stars came here that used to go to Sun Valley. They they were enamored with the new resort of Aspen. They came here like Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman and Lex Parker and all these guys. Give me some gossip, will you?
0: Give me some gossip on, I don't know, Gary Cooper.
7: Gary Cooper? Yeah. Oh, he was great. Uh, One day I was in the Jerome uh, lobby, Jerome Hotel here. And I had about six girls around me, which is nice. Gary Gary came in and he said, Klaus, I don't know what you got that I ain't got. So the next morning we were at the breakfast bar. Gary was sitting next to me and next to him a girl. When the girl found out it was Gary Cooper, she fainted and fell on the floor. I said, Gary, I don't know what you got that I ain't got. (laughs) Did you get any of
0: those uh, famous students of
7: yours to wear Obermeier gear? Oh, absolutely. Skiing used to be very formal. You skied in a necktie with a Knickerbocker suit, you know, like in 1936, 37. There there was a guy in Bavaria that made woolen fluffball ties instead of a necktie. You know, it was way out. So that caught on and got very popular. And so I made them here. And Gary came to me and said, Klaus, I hear you went in business for yourself. I said, yeah, I make these ties. He said, you know, maybe, maybe it'll help you if I put one on. I said, yeah, I'll give you one. He said, no, I pay retail. Wow, wow. <laughs> so he paid and so he put it on and went all over the press. We ended up in three years, we sold about 32,000 of those ties. And it died as fast as it developed also. <laughs> Well, Klaus, uh, thanks very much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure, and I hope we can ski together sometimes when you come up here. Oh, that would be
0: very nice. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Klaus Obermeier is the founder of Sport Obermeier, speaking with me in 2007. He turned 100 on Monday and celebrated with his friends and family in Aspen. He told the Aspen Times one secret to his longevity is that he swims about a half mile every day. Finally, for us, new music from a Denver synth-pop duo, Motion Trap, comprised of Nathan Rogers and Kyle Williams, has fundamentally changed after years of playing together. Their recent single, End To You, is the next step in that process. The pair visited our performance studio in 2017, and Rogers explained
5: Motion Trap's evolution. We used to have, like, these dueling guitars between me and him. We would write these songs, and they were, like, really... Deep and depressive almost sometimes. And we just got to this point where we said, man, let's write some fun music, something you can dance to a little bit. And uh, I remember it was the first year Monolith happened up at Red Rocks. Uh, I think they're now defunct, but we went and watched uh, Cut Copy and bands like Foles and like, man, those, they just, they did it for us. They really showed us a new kind of scene. And at that point, we were still living in Nebraska and we said, hey man, let's get out to Colorado and enjoy this a little bit.
0: single from Colorado band Motion Trap. They were recently spotlighted by our colleagues at Indie 1023. Check out this month's local 303 artists at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.